0: Lord God, we bless you and we thank you for your word. Pray that you'd open it to us today. That we would be people who come before you and relate to you in a way that you want us to relate to. you, As a child to a father, not as someone who's just keeping rules. So may your spirit breathe into us the the joy and the life of the living God. Amen. We're going to, every now and again, visit this whole um, interesting topic of tradition and why do we do certain things and why don't we do other things. I would venture to suggest that if we went through most churches' on a Sunday morning and ask them why they do what they do. You'd get some interesting answers. We all have our traditions, don't we? We have traditions about everything. Um, I remember the first time when I came to Canada, and um, I can't remember who it was, probably good, but I, when I, the first wedding I took in Canada, <coughs> We did the rehearsal and the bridesmaids came in before the bride and I spent about half an hour saying, it's not how you do it. The bride goes first, she's the most important, and then the bridesmaids. (laughs) No, not in North America.
1: (laughs) The bridesmaids go first
0: and then the bride. And I I couldn't get my head around that for quite a while. I eventually gave up, but uh, you know, I was just convinced that that was wrong. Of course, now, I know I was right. (laughs) Um, The Queen does it that way. But it was a tradition. It's a tradition in different parts of the world. Different things mean different things. Um, Some people who, you know, don't go to church on Sundays have another tradition. They watch Coronation Street. (laughs) I mean, there are lots of traditions. There are lots of things you do at Christmas time. This is what we always do. And when we sort of uh, were working as a church early on, as an Anglican church, we would have these discussions about why do we do things. I remember having one meeting uh, with the council at that time and said, you know, what is the church like? Is it a loving church? And I said, yes, it's a loving church. And what's Port Alberni like? Well, it's a working class mill town. Do people like to read? No, not much. They play board games and they watch TV and they, you know, do that kind of stuff. And we're here for them, right? Yeah, we're here for them. So their experience when they come to visit us is that we speak in a different language and we give them a library when they come in the door and they've got to find the pages and read, 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 read. And the message we're giving to them is you come in, learn our tradition and we'll tell you about Jesus and how much he loves you. So that's why we wrestled with maybe not doing that so much. So, a lot of what we talk about as tradition is actually our habits, what we're used to. They're defined by us, and as Jesus spoke with the Pharisees, you have this habit of taking things and reducing them to something that's easy and familiar and the same every week, and then you call it worship or you call it tradition, and it's just habit patterns. They're just habit patterns. And so every now and again, it's good for us to look and say, why are we doing some things, or why aren't we doing other things? Every church has a tradition, even the ones who say they don't. The ones who say, do you know what liturgy? Liturgy is, you know, the the um, the way you do worship in a church. And they have liturgical means those that read out of books or use words that are uh, are written and prescribed, as it were. And then non-liturgical churches, which just go, thank you, Jesus. And after the 500th time, it's the liturgy. Because you know, when John stands up, he goes, thank you, Jesus. And after the 1,000th time, you go, oh God, please. Can't we have another liturgy now? <laughs> You've got to laugh at ourselves. We actually are quite funny. Because we say, I'm non-traditional, and then I get rarely traditional. So the Anglican Episcopal have books. The Pentecostals raise their arms and scream. And they think they're really cool, all of them. And they're just quaint little human beings, got stuck in a rut. And saying, oh, what a good boy am I. And looking at the other one saying, thank God I'm not like them. (laughs) Aren't we cool? But the trouble is, like I've already been told by the younger generation, your music isn't that cool anymore, John. John. We need some younger people doing the music. And I said, well, that's cool, then bring the younger people. We would have a band here with young people if they were come. One of the things to pray for in this valley is young people who will rally around and be part of the church. They probably had some pretty bad experiences. But we need one another. The the thing the young people are going to have to learn is you can't get into ministry overnight without any suffering. You've got to learn. So you've got to be humble. But that's what we're praying for, because we would rather have other people doing this, and then I'll, I'll make, occasionally do it, because I can't not do it, but I'm very aware that basically you have to have the whole breadth there. And sort of Dave's straddling in the middle, desperately trying to hold on to his youth, but <laughs> his hair's falling out and he's basically getting old. <laughs> anyway, that wasn't in the script. So we talk about tradition, and there are traditions that we want to look at over these next months every now and again. Traditions like, um, we're going to talk about the creeds very briefly this morning, and uh, baptism, uh, communion. Why do we do it? Why is it important? Why do we worship? Why is it important? Why is it important to read the scriptures? Because right at the beginning, as I said, we need to allow God to define us. The only problem with that is that as soon as we get hold of something we put our spin on it so it's what is God and what is us that's the whole point that's why when we say things like it's not biblical you go says who because remember satan took the biblical scriptures and quoted them to Jesus when he tempted them in the wilderness tempted him in the wilderness satan can quote all the scriptures So everything is subject to abuse. So merely saying it's biblical three times louder and louder and louder doesn't actually give it any authority. It's just noisy. So what we have to be prepared to do is do some thinking ourselves and to say, Lord, why are we doing things? So there's some core traditions in the Christian church that transcend whether I'm a Baptist or a Pentecostal or an Anglican, it doesn't matter. That stuff is just the sort of frills. It's the house you live in and they don't have to be the same. But there's some core beliefs that are really the ones we want to focus on, that, that are non-negotiable. In the early church, nobody could read or very few people could read. In fact, as you know, until the Reformation in the 16th, 17th century, nobody read. That's why if you wanted to get the best side of why the Catholic Church ended up with so much ceremony. It was because people couldn't read. So it was like a pageant. They, 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 they took the Roman Emperor type of uh, dress and the whole demeanor and they basically said, well, if the Roman Emperor can dress like this, then surely we should do it to honour God. And I'm sure in their spirit, that was good. But because human beings are so seductive, as soon as you put on these robes and people go, Oh my Lord, suddenly you go, Oh my Lord, this is good. And instead of becoming worship of God, it becomes a bureaucracy and all gets twisted. But for many, many centuries, all they had was the theatre of the church and what happened in that church, for all kinds of reasons. But in the, in the very early church they if you go up the temple stairs in, um, in Jerusalem there' are these these mikvah baths, which are baptismal baths that people used to have to sort of go through to be purified before they went into the temple. Well, the early Christians went in there and they did their baptisms there. they basically were used to immersion and all the rest of it, so they just they, they had baptisms there as well as in other places, and the first baptism sort of baptism creed would have been I believe in Jesus the son of God but they also grew up in a culture where there was a lot of there were a lot of competing philosophies the Greek culture was emerging stronger and stronger and there were a lot of people who said well as soon as the further they got away from the crucifixion and the resurrection and the disciples who were by and large uneducated men sort of standing up saying, well, this Jesus, you know, he touched my life and he changed my life and he did this and he did that. It didn't take long before people were going to say, well, you know what, I'm going to add this little bit in it. I mean, you've heard testimonies, right? And sometimes you've wondered what happened between the actual event and the telling of it, because it's like fishing stories, they get bigger and bigger and more and more dramatic. And we human beings tend to do that. So... It wasn't long before they began to say, we need to get something that we all agree upon as to what is Christianity. And that was why in the... And and we read in Timothy, when Paul says to Timothy, and this is early on in the Christian church, he says, "...fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses." In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What was the good confession? The good confession was God is God and you're not. And God is God and Jesus came and he laid down his life for my sin and he rose from the dead and I'm proclaiming him as the God of God and the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And for the first number of centuries, if I said Jesus is Lord, not you Caesar... You came and watched me fed to the lions. That was what the early Christian church was about. They had godparents, not because it looked nice and we could dress up, but because I might be dead. Because of my affirmation that Jesus is Lord. And all you had to do in front of an authority to escape your life is to say, Caesar is Lord. Three words. And you saved, saved your life but the church's most strong and my powerful witness and growth was in the first four centuries the soaked in blood because people said this is the core of life so in the second century around about 140 AD the Apostles Creed uh, it's there somewhere please." The Apostles' Creed was formed for that reason. And the Apostles' Creed is really the statement being made of what I believe about God. And it was there because uh, there was a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics basically spoke about spirit world. And they spiritualized everything and nothing was tangible. Now my great temptation is to stand here for the next half hour and go through the Apostles' Creed and explain it. But we don't have time. I'm sure you're, you're mortified by that. but um, Basically, they, the, the the Gnostics said that the whole world was evil. That the materialism is evil. material world is evil, and God is spirit, and he did not make it. So when the Apostles' Creed comes out, they make very clear statements about, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. He's not many gods, that was in Greek. He's our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, which means at a particular time, in a particular place, through a particular person, God entered into this world. They're speaking very clearly into a very vague, mystical, spiritual world. It emphasizes the fact that Jesus was human and that he came into this world. It's a very, very important point. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died and was buried. They often said, no, he wasn't buried. Every single line in the Apostles' Creed we could spend a day on. Exploring, they were, Every line is there for a reason. And the reason is that there were other teachings that were going, he's just one of many gods, he didn't really die, he just swooned, he did this, he did that. So they spoke very clearly to it. The resurrection, I'm not going to go through it. I'm merely just saying that it's the first solid teaching. So It's got nothing to do with being Anglican. It's got nothing to do with being Catholic. It's got to do with being Christian. And one of the reasons... I believe it's important that we stand and we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which Brad is going to talk to in a minute, is because we need to know the core of what we believe. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with my opinion or how I feel that morning. And I'll give you an explanation about that in a minute. But uh, we're very privileged today to have Brad pray with us. And he is going to enlighten us about the Nicene Creed. Because he's a very smart man. How's that? Do you want to record it? Maybe not. Uh, yeah.
1: You're right. your own own. Own now. So uh, a little bit of time um, after the the Apostles' Creed kind of came into existence, the the context. That the church was growing in started to change, and where it was, as John said, it was it was this persecuted minority that was on really on the fringes of society. It it began to be accepted, and this was with the the, the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine, and through this you know miraculous you know visions and, and and everything like that, it was a pretty amazing story. He he became a Christian, and he first um, well he issued a, an edict. Saying that Christianity is now going to be an accepted religion within the Roman Empire. Not the official one, just a a tolerated one. So you could, you're allowed to be Christian, but of course it starts to become fashionable because the emperor's Christian. And, and so the, the bottom line is that it, 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 the, the context changes from one of outside the establishment, the establishment to a little bit more of the establishment. But it, it, it didn't mean that some of these debates stopped. Um, and Constantine wasn't too happy about that. He had been he had been promoting Christianity because he thought he was going to um, unite the empire, and so it was you know some politics in there as well. But there's still a lot of these debates going on. As um, you know, John talked about the Apostles' Creed, talking about the uh, the humanity of Jesus, that that he was fully man. Um, although it didn't use that language, I don't think, but. It's, it's talking about his humanity, and that's, that's incredibly important. Because if he's not human, then how could he be our sacrifice? And if he's not human, then how could he be our example? And so even like the name Christian, like, like Christ, because Christ is our example. He's the one we're trying to follow. But if he's not human, how can we follow him? And so that side of things is seen as incredibly important because it had to do with our redemption, but the, the argument started to change, and people started to go on the other side and, and questioning his deity. And there's a bunch of groups that were doing this. And there were some that would say that he's just, he's just a great prophet, just like a great man. And then there's this other group called the Adoptionists, who would say that that he was, he was a great man, once again, who was adopted by God. So he's born just like one of us, you know, somehow attained a certain level of greatness and God adopted him and so became kind of like like a light God and and all these would were denying that Jesus was truly God on par with or the same as you know God the Father and those ones those ones kind of got rejected pretty quickly they didn't really make much sense according to the scriptures but there's one that that got a lot more traction and it was led by this this man named Arius he's just really brilliant man, really well versed in in the scriptures, and can make a really, really good argument that <coughs> that that Jesus was just just you know maybe a, a few steps above us, but also a few you know maybe a step below God the Father. And for Arius, it was just incredibly important that that God be be one, and so he didn't like the idea of of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He saw that as dividing God into three. Like there's three gods we're worshiping. And, and, you know, as we look at it, we say, well, no, it's one God just in, you know, in three persons. But he didn't see it like that. And so he, um, he really, really pushed and promoted that God the Father was, was a lone God. And then there's these other levels below it. And this, as I said, got a lot of traction. But, once again, this is incredibly important for our redemption. Because if Jesus is not God, how could he be the perfect sacrifice? And if he's not God, how could he be someone that we worship? And so these these arguments were just key to the direction that the church would go. Especially because our, our redemption was kind of relying on this basis. If Jesus is not Fully God, or if Jesus is not fully human, how can we know that we've been saved? How can we know that his his death meant anything for us? And so these were created huge controversies within the church, and and Constantine began to get a little worried. Um, he saw this instead of uniting the empire, he saw it dividing it, and so he called a council in 325 to this this city called Nicaea, and to this this place. Um, the the church leaders, the fathers of the church and prominent bishops and the like were, were invited to come and, and discuss it in the search of scriptures and to see where the scriptures were leading and it's probably not as pure as all that. There's probably a whole lot of politics in play as well but, but that was the, that was what they were seeking. They're trying to, is, who is, who is this Jesus? You know, and they're still wrestling 325 years after his birth. They're still trying to figure out who he is. And, at this conference at this uh, or this council I guess uh, Arius was opposed by a man named Athanasius I probably pronounced that wrong but something like that it sounds good Um, and Athanasius was really really opposing Arius and often against everybody else you know And, and he was I think he was exiled like seven times from this point on and there's this phrase I'd never heard of. It. My textbook said that it was pretty important. It says Athanasius against the world. You know, like he was just alone, fighting, um, fighting for this truth. And, and as the fathers got together and, and really wrestled over some of these things, what Athanasius was teaching started to become on top. And what they decided, and you want to just put the creed up? Um, I should say, like you, in this in this creed. There's just a little bit here where it talks about God the Father. And that's because I, I think it's just so much easier for us to grasp the idea of this big transcendent God. Um, but then where they really were wrestling was the next bit. And there's a whole lot about Jesus. And what, as they were wrestling over this, what they eventually came up with was that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And this isn't half God, half man, like 50... Plus fifty percent equal one hundred percent. It was a hundred percent God, hundred percent man, and together they they came together in this one person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, uh, the person of Jesus, is really prominent in this creed and talked about a whole lot. And the um, the the really important phrase there, I think, is actually. Can you go down a little bit? Um, true God from true God, of one being um, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and this is really establishing once and for all that that Jesus is God, and it it didn't end the argument. some of the exiles of Athanasius were were after this point. It, it, this battle kept going, and um, it, it took a while. And, in three eighty one, they had another council that really, you know, settled the matter once and for all. And they just said, yeah, the Nicene Creed is what we believe. Um, and then it also kept the argument going. And if you go down to the, where it talks about the Holy Spirit, um, there, when they first did the Nicene Creed, they just said, you know, we believe in you know, or God and, and Jesus. And then it just said, and in the Holy Spirit. And it just stopped right there. It's because the arguments were over who Jesus was. And the Holy Spirit wasn't, didn't really come up and he was acknowledged, but the, the people hadn't started thinking about him yet. And so it wasn't until, you know, 50 some years later that they started that argument. And who is the Holy Spirit? How does he fit into all this? And I, I find that kind of encouraging because it, it shows this whole process, this journey of struggling with things and really struggling in pursuit of God. And it's, I think it, it ties up really well with this whole Jericho Road idea where we're, we're on this journey and we're seeking seeking God, and that's what they were doing at this time. And so, at the end of the day, they came up with this creed, this Nicene Creed. It's just this beautiful um, description of, of what we believe, and goes a little deeper than the Apostles' Creed. And there's also one that, that they would repeat and recite, and very important in the illiterate times, so they can be reminded of what they believe once again, and, and also important for us, as we can be reminded of these incredible truths.
0: Thanks Brad, that's very good. It's it's hugely important. Uh, And it becomes becomes more important as we realize uh, what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe, and the Nicene Creed says, we believe. And we need both. Um, But it's important because we need to be reminded, it's encouraging to remind ourselves that Without Jesus we don't know God as Father. Without Jesus we do not know God as loving. Without Jesus we do not know God as compassionate or kind or willing to forgive. We know nothing of the person of God without Jesus. All you have of God without Jesus is a distant power with no definition. Now. What does that mean? I need the. As we we finish, Vika, may the Lord bless you. (laughs) Don't worry. Carmen and Michelle were like that (laughs) one. They're quieter today. (laughs) I said I wouldn't embarrass you. What's the last words of the Bible? You know what the last words words of the Bible, that John wrote in Revelation, is this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, "Yes, I am coming soon." Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. That's about Revelation, but it's probably no accident. It's the last words of the Scriptures. Um, We live in a time where there are many, many belief systems. If you could, there's a PowerPoint there, and there should, you know. I just want to give you a very quick example. Uh, It's the next slide, that's all. Okay I'm just going to go through five or six of our current religions and I promise you this is in two minutes. The Baha'is. Baha'i faith started in 1844 in Iran. The Baha'i faith prescribes laws of personal morality and behaviour as well as social laws and principles to establish the oneness of humanity. The soul is created at the moment of conception and is destined by God to reach the afterlife where it will continue to progress until it attains the presence of God. Jesus is irrelevant in the Baha'i faith. Now one other thing, when Jesus rose from the dead and he was on the cross, he said it is finished. And then he was resurrected and then he ascended into heaven and the church began. God as revealed in Jesus said, that's it. There's no more. You don't need to add to this. You just need to come to it. So a faith that emerges in 1844 says, excuse me, you forgot something. And you'll usually find that it's much, much weaker and far less powerful. Buddhism it's the next slide. Has one fundamental belief of Buddhism is often referred to as reincarnation. In other words, uh, you're reborn after dying. That's really cool because you've got to get to God, and depending how you live now is how you reincarnated. So you could be reincarnated as Fred or a frog. You know, it depends on how you've lived your life, um, and you go on forever. It's a brutal, brutal actual philosophy. Once you get underneath the surface of Pleasant thinking. There are good things in all these. I mean, it's not all bad and all the people aren't bad. It's just the truth that we're talking about. But again, after many cycles, if a person releases their attachment to to desire and the self, they can attain nirvana, which is a state of liberation and freedom from suffering. Again, Buddhism has nothing at all to do with Jesus and disregards Jesus as irrelevant. I'm saying that in a Canadian culture where pluralism is the is the king, and pluralism means there are no right ways... Well, that's a cynical view of pluralism actually, it's a wrong view, because I would hold to pluralism, I agree with pluralism, in the sense of Canada should be a place where everybody has the right to worship how they wish, but I also have the right to disagree with you. That's the key. I have the right to try and change your mind but I don't have the right to shoot you or maim you in the process of persuading you. Quickly, Islam. Islam says there's only one God, Allah. Every time I change, you change, right? God, we're, like, we're working here. And he is the source of all creation, disposal of all lives and events. Hence, there is no God, but God, and Muhammad is his messenger. There is, Muhammad is his messenger. In Muslim eyes, Muhammad completes a succession of prophets, including Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, Each of whom refined and restate the message of God. Jesus is one of many prophets, he's not exclusive. What he did on the cross wasn't enough. The scriptures aren't enough, uh, and therefore, I mean, we could spend all day on each one of these. I'm just focusing on the, the response to Jesus and why the creeds focus on Jesus. In Judaism, the idea of God as a Redeemer is manifest in the Jewish belief that one day there will be a Messiah. God's anointed one will one day appear to gather the Jewish people once more into the land of Israel. Jesus came, he fulfilled. There are so many prophecies in the Old Testament talking about the coming of the Messiah. And if you study them and you see what Jesus did, it's amazing, the correlation. But they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. And the Messiah is saying, hey, I came. But the Jews are part of God's whole history and Jews are our foundation. So there's a whole connection there. But nevertheless, in terms of Jesus, they don't believe he is the Messiah. There is a group of Jews who call themselves Messianic Jews who do. Two more and then we're done. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses began with Charles Russell in 1870. So you wonder what was God doing before that? And when you, I've always said to people, if you're going to look at religions, look at their founders and dig into it a bit, because sometimes you shake your head and wonder how on earth anybody buys into this. It's unbelievable what people will swallow. But you see, once you're a hundred years removed from that, you don't swallow Russell's teaching. You just swallow the traditions you've had in your family. And so you don't really know what you believe, it's just familiar. And so you go along with it. And then you're also intimidated to stay there. There is one God Almighty, a spirit being with a body, but not a human body. There is one God and no Trinity, no Holy Spirit, Father, Son. Jesus is inferior to God. He's a spirit being. So Jesus again is, is taken off the throne. He's no longer the Son of God. And the Mormons, um, Joseph Smith, founder 1830, they sound very, very similar to Christian Christianity. If you look at their stuff, it's very, very close. They deny Jesus' deity, in other words, his God, and his virgin birth. He's a son of God as we can be. We can all be Jesus. He's kind of our elder brother. He takes, they take away his deity. There are probab- other stuff, but again, we don't have time. All I'm trying to illustrate is why it's important that we know what we believe because you only enter into the truth of what you know and you believe. So what you don't know and don't believe, you don't appropriate, you don't take part for your own faith. So in this little brief uh, oversight, what we're trying to do is say, therefore it's important for us to maybe um, make a practice of standing up and saying these creeds. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he was born of the Virgin Mary. I believe, I believe, I believe. We can sing it, we can say it, but it's important because it gets us back into a focus of once, one, in history, at a particular time, at a particular place, God came into the world in his son Jesus. His son Jesus lived and walked in the Capernaum, Jerusalem region of the world historically. He was killed. That's in every history book. He rose from the dead, and people have been scratching their heads ever since saying, How did that all happen? What does that mean? To me, the most attractive truth of Christianity is it's so unbelievable. The more unbelievable it is, the more believable it is. Because if I can get a hold of it, man, it's small. So, we're going to. What are we going to do now? I've got to stop talking, otherwise I'm never going to hear the end of it. <laughs> I hope it's just given you a little bit of an insight into why we say this creed. We're going to stand and say the Nicene Creed after we've sung... I don't know what we're going to do. What should we do, Dave? You're the boss. No, that's fine, that's fine. I think, I think what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll, have, um, we'll stand and say the Nicene Creed because then Brad won't blame me for saying the one I talked about. But it's the fullest one, and I think it is the, it is the most complete one. We'll say, and then uh, we'll have a short time of prayer. Okay, shall we stand? And let's have you got the Nicene Creed there? Thank you very much for that help. Uh, let's say, let's say that together. I haven't learnt it off by heart. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Maybe, Dave, you could come up and share in praying. Uh, I just want to remind you, when we say Catholic, we're not talking about Roman Catholic, we're talking about the Universal Church and those creeds. So, let's just uh, pray. We want to pray this morning for Tara and her brother, who's dying. Uh, he's only 32, um, but he's in hospital. We want to pray for them. And anything else, that seems? very you.